Hello, everyone, and welcome to God in All Things, where we'll be discussing principles of Christ and what we can learn about him through literature and film. And today we're going to be discussing a short story, so potentially a shorter episode. Can't promise anything right now while recording because we can get chatty, but we'll see how it goes. I did want to briefly apologize for any potential issues in audio that you may have noticed in our last episode. We're still working out the kinks, so hopefully it will be better this time. If not, apologies in advance, but like I said, hopefully it will be okay um, and we'll sound pretty even this time. I know Kariana was a bit quieter last time. I tried to adjust it, but you may have noticed something. So anyway, there's that. Yeah, so like I said, we're going to be discussing a short story today. We're discussing The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Said Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, this is a classic of Victorian era literature, especially with short stories um, in the American oeuvre yeah. of classics. Um, definitely one that is commonly read in schools. I think that's where I got my start with it. But let's start off with just the first couple paragraphs. We usually do a little summary synopsis thing, but I feel like with a short story, you don't want to give too much away right at the beginning. So we'll just start with the first couple of paragraphs because I feel like that gives you an idea of kind of the atmosphere in this story, which I think is kind of the main point, is the atmosphere a little bit more, especially with Edgar Allan Poe. So it starts, it's true, yes, I have been ill, very ill, but why do you say that I have lost control of my mind? Why do you say that I am mad? Can you not see that I have full control of my mind? Is it not clear that I am not mad? Indeed, the illness only made my mind, my feelings, my senses stronger, more powerful. My sense of hearing especially became more powerful. I could hear sounds I had never heard before. I heard sounds from heaven, and I heard sounds from hell. Listen, listen, and I will tell you how it happened. You will see. You will hear how healthy my mind is. Okay, pause. Yes. What version are you using? What the heck? <laughs> I don't know. So post that event of me reading the summary, we realized that we have different versions. We didn't know there were different versions of the Telltale Heart, <laughs> but apparently there are. So there's like the original 1840s language version, and the one I'm referring to is a more modern language version. So we'll still be referring to both, just depending on our notes and stuff. But just so you're aware, they'll sound a little bit different and if you're following along or something, it may look a little different because, like I said, I apparently have an updated English version. I haven't read this. In my defense, I haven't read this since <laughs> high school. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is the Telltale Heart. Um, but apparently, I mean, it is, but it's just it a translated kind of version, which it was originally written in English. So that sounds weird. But anyway, so just a disclaimer there since that ended up coming up. But yes, so personal go. experiences. Um, like I said, I pretty much just read this in high school. I think I read it once in either ele like late elementary school or middle school the first time. I want to say it was probably like sixth grade that I read it the first time. That could be totally off though. It was, yeah, sixth or seventh grade probably. And then I know I read it again in my high school years. So I've read it twice in school, and then I know I've read it on my own at least once before, just out of curiosity, before obviously reading for this. Um, but that's the extent of my experience. It was the first um, Edgar Allan Poe I had read. I haven't read, like, all of his works. I've read several of his stories, and I think my favorite is The Cask of Amontillado, but I do 
do also really like this one. It is a shorter one, but it is very interesting. And especially this time, it brought up a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have thought of before, especially when I was younger. So yeah, I'm a a mega Edgar Allan Poe nerd, (laughs) which if you know me probably isn't that surprising. (laughs) Although we have mentioned that you don't like sad endings. So there's something to that. That's true. That's true. But I, I am a like dark themes kind of person. I don't, there's a bit of Mm -hmm. dissonance there. I'm not sure how to explain it away, but uh, (laughs) I like, I like happy romantic endings, but if there's nothing romantic about it, then, you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, but yeah, I love I love darker themes. I love intense themes. I love creepy things. I'm like a Halloween fanatic, and you know, and, and I always always loved Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I know we mentioned I think in our introduction that both of us are big like Victorian literature nerds. Edgar yes. Allan Poe was definitely mm-hmm. like the beginning of that for me. He was the first oh, okay. Victorian literature uh-huh. I really fell in love with. I mean, because I've been reading him since middle school. You yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, like, I don't remember the first time I read this story, but I know when it was introduced to me in school, I already knew it. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, and had read his stuff before and knew him and loved him. And so, so yeah, these days I don't read a whole lot of American Victorian literature, but yeah. Edgar Allan Poe yeah. has stayed. He's definitely stayed the favorite. I've always been a big fan. So this story goes back to who I don't even know when. I love that. <laughs> Always been a favorite. I had a lot of it memorized at one point, actually, because oh, I really? bought an audio version of one of my favorite actors, like re- doing a read through and I would just oh. listen to it. And so <laughs> memorized that. a lot of it. <laughs> that is very so, yeah. impressive. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're so passionate about it because I'm not anti it, but i I mean, I just am like, yeah, Edgar Allan Poe is good, you know? (laughs) Good stuff. That kind of attitude. So (laughs) that is great. That would make this a lot more exciting. (laughs) Um, So let's get into our gospel principle. We actually kind of have two that are connected in a lot of ways, but they technically are two separate ideas. So I'll let Karyana introduce both of those. So we're going to be talking about guilt versus shame. I'll start kind of with that and then we'll move on to the next one. Um... So I just wanted to read, I found one quote that just summed it up really, really well. Um, In uh, an article in the January 2020 Enzyme called Shame Versus Guilt, Help for Discerning God's Voice from Satan's Lies by Mikkel A. Jorgensen. Um, And she said that in the social sciences, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Guilt, or my own insertion, what I prefer to think of as godly sorrow, um, is a sense of remorse and the desire to make amends. Shame is character-based, I am a bad person, whereas guilt is action-based, I did a bad thing. Shame leads you to want to shrink, hide, and disappear. Guilt identifies an action that you regret, prompting you to change for the future. And then the connected principle that we want to discuss today is the true nature of God. Um, And that one's more difficult to place like one, you know, kind of strict definition on Mm -hmm. just because the nature of God is revealed to all of us slowly over time and in different ways. God has lots of attributes, just like we do. There's lots of aspects to God's character. And uh, Joseph Smith taught that it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. 
So um, all scriptures or any other text, like we're pr- trying to prove with the show, point us to God and can help us understand him better. But not many do that as clearly as the four gospels, descriptions of Jesus and his teachings. Um, in Elder Holland's October 2003 General Conference Address, he says, In word and in deed, Jesus was trying to reveal and make personal to us the true nature of his Father, our Father in heaven. He did this at least in part because then and now all of us need to know God more fully in order to love him more deeply and obey him more completely. So we want to encourage you all to read the scriptures and pray to develop an understanding of God's character for yourself because that's the best way to do it. I love that. Such good definitions. Thank you. We did also want to start off discussing kind of how we view God, um, our personal relationship with God, as seen, like she mentioned, through the four Gospels of Jesus Christ, and more specifically just on certain stories um, and scriptures within the four Gospels that I think bring out, highlight some really important parts of God's character that are very applicable to what we'll discuss in relationship with the Telltale Heart. So we'll have Kariana start with hers, and we don't really fully know all of each other's thoughts on <laughs> this. So slightly we discussed secret. it slightly, but um, not a lot. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Okay. So I was kind of torn when we agreed to uh, to share a story that shared the nature of God. I like looked through a bunch of my scripture notes and I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, but I finally settled on a story. I'm, I'm sure it happens in other places too, but I have it marked in Matthew 14. Um, it's right when John the Baptist has been beheaded. So Jesus is kind of like, hearing that news and mourning right and um he hears about it so i'll read matthew 14 13 and 14 when jesus heard of it he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart and when the people had heard thereof they followed him on foot out of the cities and jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick so i just i Again, I was reading through my scripture notes and what I had written on this verse was that like, I just see this as one of the greatest depictions of mm-hmm. love and compassion that Jesus ever shows. You know, he um, he's just experienced a loss. He somebody really close to him who he cared for has died and he specifically leaves to go somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. it's like going through a tragedy and leaving to be alone but then everybody follows you. And then when he sees them, he has compassion on them. Yeah. And it heals them mm-hmm. and expends his energy to help them. And I just, it's just amazing to me, just that kind of endless compassion and mercy and love. And the fact that he's such an example of being willing to put himself aside for everybody else and yeah and so i just think that that is a beautiful depiction of of christ of heavenly father and the way that they love us and would do and give anything for us i love that and i love that it illustrates that central to everything he is is being a healer Mm. and everything that goes along with that even personal sacrifice any personal sacrifice is about healing someone um whether that be from emotional pain physical pain whatever it is like spiritual pain um that's his first instinct is to spend his energies to do that 
that actually does kind of lead into mine a little bit with um, the woman caught in adultery, where in her case, it is more specifically spiritual pain and suffering that she's being healed from. But just to recap, I'll read a few of these um, verses. I'm looking in John 8 for this story. So the story starts off with Christ in the temple. This is very early in the chapter, and he has a bunch of people sitting and listening to him. And a group of scribes and Pharisees bring unto him a woman who was taken in adultery. I think I'm going to just read verses 4 through 11 because that contains the main part of the story, and then I'll kind of talk about some of my thoughts pertaining to it. Um, Starting in verse 4, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convinced by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted him up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more." Connecting that with your story about him healing others even when he was suffering, this is a moment where he was willing to sacrifice himself. They could have done all sorts of things to him, but he, I mean, first of all, he listened to the Spirit to know exactly what to say to touch them, but also um, he was willing to put himself in a precarious position for her sake and to heal her. And I love this story because it doesn't tell you what he wrote on the ground, but I've always liked to think that it was something that was specifically meant for her, Mm. that she's, because she's, you're imagining her on the ground, on her knees, looking down, and if he's just in front of her writing there, like, she's going to be able to see it better than anyone. And so we don't know what it was, but I believe it had something, I don't think he was just randomly moving his finger. I think everything he did was very purposeful. And I think in that moment, the writers of the Gospels probably didn't fully understand either. But between him and her, there was this moment where he was doing something that meant something to her. And so it shows not only that he wants to heal us, but he's also a very personable and loving God. That he, it's not just about these general rules and these general expectations, but he's very specifically wants a relationship with each one of us. And so, with that in mind, all those thoughts in mind um, about the nature of God, we move into the Telltale Heart, which I think I'm going to start a little bit with how this, so as we're reading, um, we view, at least in my head as I was reading this, I was thinking of the old man as representative in some ways of God. And we are seeing the narrator, his feelings towards this old man are very complex, which I thought was really interesting. So I want to start with a few, a little quote about how he feels about this old man. He says, he starts off by saying, it is impossible to say how the idea first entered my head. There was no reason for what I did. I did not hate the old man. I even loved him. He had never hurt me. I did not want his money. I think it was his eye. His eye was like the eye of a vulture, the eye of one who's ter- one of those terrible birds that watch and wait while an animal dies and then fall upon the dead body and pull it to pieces to eat it. 
which is very graphic and dramatic. Yeah. But it just makes me think, like, if we're thinking about it in relationship with God, like, he has this old man who has probably been taking care of him. It sounds like they live together. So mm-hmm. this old man has welcomed him into his home. They know each other well enough. It almost seems like he's like, I even loved him. He had never hurt me. So it's kind of like we've known There's each other a, a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can think of him as a father, maybe a grandfather, an uncle, some sort of relationship like that, just a father figure, perhaps of some kind. But what drove him crazy was his eye because he views this old man's eye as something that's seeing something he doesn't want to be seen. If he was just looking at him and just, I don't know, had an ugly eye or something, I don't think it would be as impactful in the story as if this narrator has something he wants to hide, something that he knows the old man knows about him that he doesn't want him to know. And when he thinks of that, he views it as a judgmental eye, as someone who's waiting for him to fall apart, who's like, you know, I'm not going to actually hurt you or anything. It's almost like this subtle suffering that this old man is impl- is implementing on the narrator, um, at least in the narrator's perspective, is what that means. Um, it's unclear throughout the story what perhaps the narrator did or had happened, but you do get the feeling that he feels ashamed of something. Yeah, I had very similar thoughts on that that uh it it was kind of interesting because it never says it but when I was like thinking things through I was like oh you know that's kind of an interesting point and I was like and I went back to the quote and I was in my head I remembered it saying something about the eye looking inside of him but then Mm -hmm. I I, like kept reading and kept reading and I could not find that and I finally had to admit that it wasn't there Mm -hmm. um but that's totally the feeling that it gives you that uh Mm -hmm. that this eye is looking inside of him and it makes him uncomfortable and so yeah shame was exactly kind of the the feeling that I read in that that this that this eye kind of made him feel insecure feel shame about something that maybe he has or hasn't done who knows and so it's he wanted to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling that thought of the eye kind of being the main focus of the narrator also leads me to an interesting thought that's in this book um it's called all things new by fiona and terrell gibbons it's a really great book just discussing various terms that are common in christianity that have been misdefined over time and make it a lot more of a just basically create a much more judgmental and hurtful god because of how these things have been misdefined um but how the restoration of the gospel has brought back some of those definitions in a more comprehensive and often more positive light i don't know if positive is the right way because it doesn't like shy away from the fact that you know we have been asked to do certain things and stuff but um it does discuss things like judgment and things like that. Early on in the book, um, the first part of it kind of discusses early Christianity and what was believed then and kind of over time how things shifted. And at one point it talks about um, specifically St. Augustine, but it kind of gets into the idea of God being disembodied and like no longer seeing God as being, as us being made in his image. So he would look like us or we would look like him. Just taking that away and turning him into more of a force or some this unknowable being. And it talks about how really it makes it so he's very separate from us. It takes away that personable nature, like I talked about with the woman in caught in adultery. Um, there's a quote in, in here that says, The real catastrophe is what is lost when God is disembodied. 
Once Christians abstract God from human form, it is natural to abstract them from human forms of experience as well, especially of pain and suffering. And it also talks about how it separates um, them from our kind of love. Like you almost think of their love as something different, something we can't understand. But then it makes it so, first of all, we can never grow the way we want to because if it's something we can never understand, then it just seems unobtainable. I mean, we don't have to fully understand it, but understanding enough that we can live it in our own experience in some way. That's what he's doing with this I idea is he's focusing so much on this I that it's becoming like this old man isn't a person to him anymore. It's just this sense of this embodiment of judgment and suffering for himself and that's what ends up making it so it seems like he's more comfortable with the idea of committing this act of act of murdering the old man sorry if you haven't read this story (laughs) didn't know that's where it was going but that's where it's going yes (laughs) he decides to do that because he's trying to destroy that idea this disembodied image and forgetting the true nature behind that eye and what it means I think that's totally backed up um, by what he talks about as he, after he introduces the fact that he hates the old man's eye, um, he then talks about how he kind of like prepares to murder the old man, Mm -hmm. right? So he decides to prepare by every night going into the old man's room to like watch him sleep. Who knows why he does this? (laughs) But he says that he just, he wants to go in to watch the old man sleep. Um, but I kind of have a, a theory that I'll get to um, relating to what we're talking about. So he says that he would like slowly stick his head in the room um, and then undo this lantern that he has. Right. And he says, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And so I thought that was so interesting that, like, that he says he couldn't do the work Mm -hmm. because he couldn't see the man's eye. And so I think that Mm -hmm. he's, I'll I'll just throw out that I do think he's mad. He talks the whole time about how Uh he's not mad. And every time he says, would a madman do this? I'm like, yeah, Yeah. actually, that's exactly what a madman would do. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyways, so going under the presumption that he is insane, um, I think that he is like, justifying his actions as preparing but he actually just like needs to see this eye to get himself worked up enough to commit murder because again that's what makes him so upset because when he just sees the man like he can't justify murder because he's just this old man who he loves you know (laughs) it's just that it's just that judgment it's that I love that you said disembodied it's just this eye that Mm -hmm. makes him so upset enough that he can actually kill him Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, because I think, I mean, this is so extreme that it's easy to separate ourselves from this idea, but (laughs) how many times do we, like, sometimes have moments where we're like, I just want to be mad at God? Well, like, I want to be mad at someone and blame someone. And God is the easiest And God's the easiest. (laughs) And so, but you have moments where you, like, you're like, well, I can't be mad at that, but I can you know, turn him into something he's not, and then it's easier to be mad at him. And I think that's probably a problem for a lot of people who fall away from the church. Is there 
trying like they're forcing themselves to focus on the bad um and maybe it's not like exerting the energy to force themselves but they're taking the opportunity to focus on the bad because it's a lot easier to be angry at something that is disembodied and that seems just hurtful than it is to be truly angry at god once you know who he actually is because i've thought a lot about this actually in recent days this last come follow me lesson this last sunday that i had like i know i have a lot of times in my life where i just am mad at god and i'm like and usually it's because i don't know what's gonna happen but ultimately i feel like i've developed enough of a relationship with god that i'm like i know i'm never gonna leave i even will say that in prayers i'm like god i know i'm not gonna leave because i know who you are and i know that eventually it will be okay because i know who you are but, like, I'm just mad right now, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, how many times do we do that of just, like... And the deeper you have a relationship with God and, like, know his true nature, the, it's a lot harder to be actively, like, angry with him enough to turn away. And sure. enough, to fight him, enough to fight him. But that's where this guy is at, is he is... He doesn't probably fully understand the nature of God or the nature of this old man because he is lost probably in his own troubles. Like, he's not letting himself develop a real relationship with this old man. That's why he just calls him the old man. Right. When, like I said, like, he's probably in a much closer relationship with him, but he just refers to him as the old man probably because he's... Exactly. Separated himself. Probably starting with whatever action or actions he's committed in the past that he is feeling stressed by now. No, I definitely agree that, like, getting to know who God is is the best defense against getting angry at God. Uh Because you can't, I've thought that so many times where I'm like, um, Heavenly Father, why are you letting this happen? And then I'm like, oh yeah, because, like, there's something better coming, you know? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. so many times where I'm, like, so angry and I'm, like, looking for something to be angry about, but because... I know the truth. It's like, I can talk myself out of it, but sometimes that just makes me more angry, but then I'm angry at myself instead. Mm -hmm. But um, it it is an interesting, the idea of, I I heard uh, a few years ago now, but I was talking to someone really close to me who um, has left the church in my family. It was such an interesting conversation (laughs) Um, because she uh, she's had a lot of hardships in her life. Right. And, you know, it's been starting when she was really young, lots of lots of different issues. And so she was just saying, you know, I'm just like, I'm just done. Like, obviously, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. And he doesn't like he's not there for me. And so, and she was talking about God as if he exists, right? Um, Like he he doesn't love me. He's there to not care about me. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after she transitioned to saying, so I just try to do my best to be a good person and and hope that the universe will do good things for me. And I was like, okay, so God did all of the bad things in your life, but the universe (laughs) gives you all of the good ones. (laughs) Uh And so it's just this really interesting, like, hardcore separation Mm -hmm. in her head, right? This disconnect of where, like, and I think it comes from being told that, like, if you follow God, then life will be good, right? Which Mm -hmm. is kind of a problematic teaching because it's not Uh true. true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so we get told that. And so we decide that if something bad happens, then God is withholding something good from us. And so then it's easy to say like, oh, well, the universe and people do good things, but God is evil. And it's just not, 
how it works and such so such a twisted way to think about it yeah like why <laughs> if the universe has the power to give you good things why isn't it doing like, the bad things yeah, like, <laughs> if you believe one has power and yeah anyway it's very yeah very it's, big it's really fascinating sure. yeah so just kind of made me think of that of that kind of disconnect disembodiment one more thing before we move on about his preparation for the murder. Um, he talks about how when he pokes his head in and looks into the room, he held a light covered over with a cloth so that no light showed and stood there quietly. And it immediately took me to Matthew five fifteen, where it says, um, do men light a candle and put it under a bushel? Mm-hmm. Because I think part of his problem, especially when it comes to the difference between guilt and shame, is he feels the need to cover his light probably because he feel he feels like he shouldn't have any. And obviously, in this case, he's trying to prepare to be able to see the old man in the dark and whatnot. But I think it's very interesting that, like, I mean, if the light didn't wake him up immediately anyway, why are you covering it up? And I think, in a way, it is symbolic of his feeling the shame and that's putting his light out he's choosing to cover up the gifts god gave him he's choosing to cover up the opportunity to repent and become more like christ um because he's feeling shame where he feels like it's all about like he whatever he did was enough to make him not worth the old man's time and in fact worth his judgment Mm -hmm. and also not worth any light that he personally could have and so i think that's interesting that he goes into this turning not only like looking at the old man in this negative way but also looking at himself holding a light in a less than perfect way um instead of feeling guilt where he'd maybe at least let some light out and trust that the light would guide him somewhere Mm -hmm. where he's supposed to go. He's seeing the light as a burden or a hindrance to what he feels he needs to do in order to overcome this shame. Yeah. And the only area where he allows his light to shine is on that area of judgment. So he's only Mm -hmm. allowing himself to see that part of this man's character that makes Mm -hmm. him uncomfortable rather than shining it in the whole room where he would actually be able to see the whole truth. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's really great. Okay. So moving into the night of the murder, I think it's interesting throughout this, this will be my one starting comment and then I'll let you (laughs) go into your next point. But, um, I think it's interesting. You'll see throughout the rest of this and really early on too, there's a lot of, there's a big motif of a clock Mm. throughout And in my mind, it's kind of portraying that this is a very gradual thing. It didn't happen overnight that he suddenly decided to kill this man. He even talks about it's been weeks. He talks a lot about the ticking of the clock. Like, he is running out of time um, and he's very aware of it. Whatever that means to him, we don't know for sure, but that is a common motif throughout it. And so I, I mean, I've thought about it in the sense of, like I said, it's a gradual descent and it's also something that it's time that could have been spent doing something better, but it's time he chooses to spend obeying a different force besides Mm -hmm. God. I just had a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting. I wasn't sure if you were going to go the direction of the old man kind of representing God. Okay. But I did just a little bit, but I was kind of like, it's kind of weird because he's like entirely mortal. Yes. (laughs) But like, 
I'm still kind of seeing it. So I was glad when you said that you you were looking at that too, because I was like, okay. So I just had some kind of like interesting, slightly disconnected, but some things that I thought were interesting thoughts about kind of that um, relationship between them, I guess. Mm -hmm. First, so right at the beginning when he says, you know, it's upon the eighth night and he's like ready to go. He says... To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. I just kind of, I thought about how sometimes we like to tell ourselves that God doesn't actually know everything, (laughs) you know? It's like, uh, it's, I've expressed this before in, in classes, saying, uh, I, I guess just um, one of the strangest experiences I've ever had is being on my knees trying to confess a sin, but like, and knowing that God knows it, but not able to get myself to say it, you know, mm-hmm. there's like something to speaking it out loud, which I believe very firmly because it's so hard for no yeah. reason, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I think you can know that somebody knows what's going on, like that God, not somebody, that God mm-hmm. knows what's going on. And we can like almost like in our head, maybe not our hearts, but in our heads convince ourselves that it's not real mm-hmm. until we actually admit it, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. out loud. So I just thought that was kind of funny because then... Like, for the rest of this scene, it's pretty clear that the old man, like, knows somebody is there and knows something is going on and knows that foul play is about to be Mm -hmm. attempted, even though he's kind of like, so I don't know, it kind of like the fact that he believes this itself almost implies to me that the old man might have known something was Mm -hmm. up the whole time (laughs) because he reacted so fast to this, knowing that there was something sketchy going on. Yeah, and I think in some ways when he's looking at the old man, he's considering, like, he's putting, he's kind of projecting his own thoughts and feelings on him, mm. um, which we see, that's kind of like the big climactic moment, is he's putting his For own sure. experience and saying it's the old man. So I wonder in some ways if he's like, oh, I don't know what God's thinking, but really mm. it's God doesn't understand what I'm thinking. And um, instead of appreciating that God is just, Sorry, he's God, so <laughs> he can't, knows. yeah, he knows. Because um, I even think it's interesting, one of the later parts that I noticed during this scene is, so first of all, after he ends up waking up and sitting up, um, it says he sat straight up in bed and cried, who's there? Which brought me back to Adam and Eve when he's like, mm-hmm. Adam, where art thou? Yeah, I thought of that Like too. that question of like, he knows yeah. who's there, but it's giving him a chance to come clean and step forward. He has this moment where he could stop right there. He could just be like, oh, it's just me and move on. And like, no one would ever be the wiser. Even if the old man kind of knew, like, they, they would be able move to move on. on. Yeah. Um, but he chooses not to. He just stays there for a whole hour. He does. It says he doesn't move or do anything. And then it says, nor did I hear him lie down in his bed. So he, he just sat there listening. So he's just sitting there. And then all of a sudden, after an hour, according to him, the old man gives a little cry of fear. Yeah. And I'm like, it's interesting that he says that because I'm like, after an hour? You would say that? I don't think so. I think that maybe an after an hour of him sitting there thinking about what he's about to do, he would make a sound. And mm. especially in relation w- later on where we have the telltale hearts. 
ultimately, I mean, the story suggests that it's his own heart that's pounding because he's stressed about what he did. Um, and so it stands to reason that the cries of fear and the shouts of fear come more from him. Yeah. But he's projecting it onto God because it makes him feel better. It be- makes him feel like, you know, I'm not afraid. I've got this. I'm taking down God. Right. Like people who are anti-religion, anti-Christianity, anti-the church, they are going in thinking, oh, yeah, I can beat God. But the truth is God is never dead and he's going to be just fine. But it's really them it's who are the yeah. difficult, the ones who are in a difficult position, whatever that means for them, different feelings, different um, thoughts about the world are coming from them. They're just projecting them onto God. And so in this moment, we're seeing that with this man, he's projecting his own fears and concerns onto the old man. And that makes him a lot more, again, disembodies God from himself yeah. and turns him into something that can be attacked. That's interesting. What I had kind of thought of with that, I had highlighted that sentence and was like kind of trying to think like, okay, what would this be in terms of like a God character, right? Mm -hmm. And the only thing I really came up with was kind of a like moan of of grief for the Mm -hmm. sin that he knows is going to be committed. It's kind of this like, I know what's going to happen and this pain for like what this person he loves is about to do. But I really love the idea of projection, especially with the next sentence when the narrator says, I knew the sound well many a night, just at midnight, which is when he's been poking his head in the old man's room, Mm -hmm. when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom. So that he like basically says, I've made these sounds (laughs) at these times when I've been staring at this old man, but he's also claiming that the old man is making the sound. And it's all of a sudden the night that he ends up committing the murder. Yeah. But it's before he sees the eye. Right. Which is what ends up causing him to just do it. So it definitely... I mean, he's an untrustworthy narrator. Oh, for sure. Because sure. he's insane. <laughs> yes, he's insane and he's a murderer. So, yes. like... In all ways, know. unreliable narrator. But, yeah, so that's um that's really interesting. I do think it's interesting, considering this, um, where um, the guilt... We don't really see that shame and guilt very obviously throughout the story until the very end. But I think it's interesting that the shame is actually very obviously there because shame we can turn it inwards where we're beating ourselves up but eventually for most people it does turn outward into a an aggressive an aggressive anger Mm -hmm. almost like you're kind of just trying to make up for your own hatred towards yourself over something that you end up taking it out on something else someone else Usually. And in this case, he clearly, like we mentioned at the beginning, he's done something. We don't know what it is, um, especially, and I think this is probably where I got this idea in the original text. Because <laughs> when I was reading this, I was like, where are those words that I was like, I had thought of um, before? And they weren't in my version. So that yeah, makes a lot more sense. Um, there's a lot of words that are kind of descriptive, potentially, of like some sort of sexual sin. Just like, I don't want to go too deep into them because they can get 
graphic if you're thinking of it that way but like thrusting and things like that like that's a lot of the vocabulary that Edgar Allan Poe uses when describing how he's getting into the room Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and I think a lot of that potentially is hinting at perhaps the thing he's embarrassed about ashamed of has to do with that in some way whether that was a non-consensual thing for whoever he was with or even if it was consensual maybe he just feels bad about it and the old man knows what happened um potentially even a wife that he abandoned or who knows something and that's why he's living with this old man anyway we don't know like i said exactly what it is but whatever it is it's something he feels very ashamed of and so but instead of feeling bad about it like i feel like at the beginning he talks about kind of his own feelings and then it turns into the old man and then in this murder scene we're seeing it go and turn into this climactic event of his own shame where he's beat himself up so much he's beating up this old man so much in his head that eventually this comes to a climax where he's both i mean we've talked about his feelings towards the old man and what he's planning to do and the fear that he is glad to instill in the old man's heart um and he even talks about the old man's fear must have been great indeed because he can hear the heartbeat so even but even in that moment we've established later on in the short story that the heartbeat is his own and I'm sure in this moment, it's the same thing. He's like, oh, he must be so scared of me. Yeah. But, I mean, he's just been chilling there for an hour and nothing's happened. I don't think he'd be that scared. Right. I think if anybody's scared, it's the person who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. And he's so saying, his fears have ever have been ever since growing upon him. And he's trying to kind of, you know, yes. explain them uh-huh. away, but he can't. It's like, maybe. <laughs> is it <laughs> him or scared. is it you? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so we're seeing it. Climb, come to a climax because it's this combination of his beating himself up and beating God up um, or the old man as the symbolism and so and then we end up seeing the fallout of this and that's where we get to see it a little more obvious that he's transitioned into realizing that it is him it's been him he's mm-hmm. been the problem all along all right so then we move into the fallout of the murder everything that happened so he talks first of all about um how careful he was to hide the body which i thought was very interesting and i don't know if this is the best time to say it, but it is the next thing that's there so i'm just going to say it because he specifically says i was careful not to let a single drop of blood fall on the floor mm-hmm. and in my mind it's taking me to the blood of christ and all that represents and so it's literally like he's denying himself the repentance process in that right. moment like he's like i'm not even gonna let one drop of this fall to the floor because i don't want it he's refusing actively refusing christ's help in that moment even though he's made this terrible decision yeah. and and another kind of interesting i hadn't thought about this until you said uh-huh. that but he talks about how smart he is about it the whole time oh, too right. yeah he's talking about how wise he is, how intelligent he is, you know, his sagacity is where I learned that word, $5 word there. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and it, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting connection there to, we're often warned about like, we can, if letting our learning, our worldly learning kind of like convince us that godly things aren't true, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a danger of that, of thinking that we're, too smart for god and i think he definitely falls into that where he's like oh i'm too smart for all of this and i have this all covered 
on my own and I don't need that from you. (laughs) I can take care of it myself. Mm -hmm. Very prideful. And that keeps him from being humble enough to accept Christ's help, which is just ends up hurting him in the end. Sad for him. (laughs) Yes, because it's kind of a weird thing to say, but you'll know what I'm getting at. Like, (laughs) the blood was dripping anyway. Like, he just was the one who missed out on the opportunity to gain something from that and to be blessed by that. And so... Whether he liked it or not, the sacrifice has been made, and for him, but he just, he could have, in that moment, realized what he'd done and gone to the police himself, basically, and allowed them to see the evidence, and that would have been freeing to him, but instead he decides to hide it, try to hide it. Of course, that doesn't last very long. Oh, I think it's very interesting, speaking of the next part, when three people come, three men Oh, come. stop. I know. I hadn't even thought about I know. that. <laughs> so literally, the Godhead, the Trinity, however wow. you want to refer to it, God, Christ, and the Holy Ghost coming to his door and are there. And he has this opportunity once again to admit what's happened. Yeah. Um, but but he doesn't. About... He tries to brush it off because he's too smart. Yeah. Like you said. And it's all about hiding it. Kind of mm-hmm. that that first definition of shame that we talked about. Like when you feel that shame, you, you shrink, you hide, you cover things up, right? Mm-hmm. So he thinks that he's freed himself, but he hasn't because he has that exact same feeling. It's now just been like transfer now it's he's just dead instead of yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. but he still has to hide and his feelings haven't gone away yeah <laughs> and i think that's probably a great moment of transition for him from shame to guilt as he like starts to realize like oh i'm still feeling these feelings mm. of hatred towards myself right and it frustration didn't work. with myself and i'm trying to cover him up still but eventually it stops working he doesn't have anywhere to focus it anymore so he has to reflect Mm -hmm. inward on him instead (laughs) he's forced to admit it and it's interesting too with though with these three where he's trying to pretend and Mm -hmm. hide it he says as if playing a game with them i ask them to sit down and talk for a while and so and it's interesting that it's not until after that that he starts to have his heart pound Mm -hmm. that he he made the decision to sit and talk with them but it's once they start having this discussion that he starts falling more into a guilt phase in my mind where he's starting to realize i did something wrong he feels like he needs to do something to make reparation for it yeah um as opposed to hiding it away Oh, something I didn't even mention at the beginning, though, in those first couple paragraphs that we read to kind of describe it also that comes back into play here is where he says that he hears better. And when we refer to the spirit, we refer to listening to the spirit. And so he talks about how through this situation, he his senses grow stronger. And one of the things specifically he says is he hears better. Okay. And so I, in my mind, and then... Also, with this idea of these three men sitting in this room talking with him, like, in the fact that he hears better with them talking to him, it even says, um, oh, yeah, there was a strange sound in my ears. The sound became clearer and still they sat and talked. Hmm. So whatever they're saying is bringing something up. Yeah. And I think that's also very representative of the spirit working in us and teaching us. And if we have open enough an open enough heart no pun intended um (laughs) we can start to understand better what we're being taught 
Yeah. And I can even relate to the idea where it says, um, I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, you know, like the, yeah. <laughs> the sound mm-hmm. is like getting in his head and it, it's getting more in mind. It says distinct. It's getting more and more distinct. And he's like talking, he, he's talking louder and getting more intense and more mm-hmm. of it. later. It says, I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair, you know, he's like trying to cover it up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've definitely been there where I'm like, Oh, are you talking to me? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you over the conversation I'm having here in my own head. <laughs> Until finally, you know, you have to be like, okay, okay, fine. okay, I know I what you it. want, I get it. Yes, uh-huh. so true, so true. Um, and then, of course, at the end, um, he thinks they hear this sound, which is the heartbeat that he thinks is coming from the old man. Louder, louder, louder. Suddenly I could bear it no longer. I pointed at the boards and cried, Yes, yes, I killed him. Pull up the boards and you shall see. I killed him. But why does his heart not stop beating? Why does it not stop? It's because God cannot be silent. <laughs> God <laughs> is not dead. <laughs> no, he is not dead. He's going to keep talking. Yeah. Um, which is such a comfort to think about it the really fact is. that he's, no matter how loud we yell, no matter how much we ignore him, his voice is always going to be there. We just have to be willing to listen to it. He's never mm. going to force it down our throats. We can always leave the room, so to speak. Right. But he's always going to be The second somewhere. we open our ears, mm. he's yeah. right there. He's and even if we're not willing to listen, he's still there. He's still talking. He's still present, whether we like it or not. <laughs> he's just gonna keep going no matter what we do. Yeah. Um. And even when we are this man who's attempting to murder God, basically, and comes to the realization that he can't, not really, he's still welcome in God's kingdom after that. Like he's still able to listen Mm -hmm. if he's willing to let that in and i think in this moment too we see that he has switched over to guilt because he's aware that his action was wrong and he talks about he it does sound insane and i think in some ways he is insane but in context of this discussion like he starts off being like you know i am clearer headed than i've ever been basically Mm -hmm. and i that's after this has all happened and i think it's because he's reached a point where he's finally taken responsibility and been accountable for something and that's freeing to him yeah for sure i think it's interesting um there's a really clear parallel to me here at the end with the you know it talks about um the sound as a watch makes one enveloped in cotton which is a throwback to right after he killed the old man, right? Mm -hmm. He says, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton and says that it was the old man's heart. And, oh, no, sorry, it's right before he kills the old man. Um, (laughs) He says, it increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. Uh, And then... It, you know, it keeps getting more intense and more intense and more intense. And then finally, but the beating grew louder, louder. I thought that the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. And then that's when he kills him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this fear that somebody would hear. And so he has to take action. And then there at the end, um, it's... Uh, they chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew they were making a mockery 
Um, and then it was louder, louder, louder. And then he finally, he, he says, I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. And then he finally admits it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's this, he, like, like, you know, you've mentioned, he's projecting the sound. And in both cases, killing the old man and in revealing what he had done. I think it's kind of an interesting parallel that in both cases, he hears that same kind of ticking watch heartbeat like sound um and it gets louder and louder in his head until he can't handle it anymore and acts and i think that's our very clear like i guess i see that as like a really hard line you know we kind of talk about the transition between from shame to guilt and i think that Mm -hmm. those are two like really clear distinctions where at first He's so stressed out about this old man and what he knows and that he needs to get rid of him that his his fear of of his heart, his fear of somebody knowing what's going on makes him want to get rid of the old man to hide those actions. And then there at the end, after he's transitioned to this kind of guilt phase, um, that same sound, that same stressful thing makes him reveal himself rather than hide it. And so... I don't know. I think there's something interesting there that like it is completely like the factors are the same. The It's his mindset. The feelings mm-hmm. are the same. The factors are the same. The variables are the same. It's where his head is at that pushes him to act differently and do yeah. different things because he easily could have kicked them. He could have freaked out and been like, OK, it's like five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't slept. I need to go to bed, you know, yeah. and um, or decided to try to kill them or tried to kill them. Yeah, he could have done something else to further hide his actions. But instead, he reacts differently and reveals himself like he could have done to the old man before, but chose not to. So I think, yeah, it's it's that head game, that mindset of where we're at. So it's all about shifting our own perspective and mindset to really make that change happen. Yeah, I really like how you brought up the perspective. Um, back to this All Things New book, it has a chapter on worthiness mm. and what that really means, which I think matches this very well. Um, and it actually has a link to an eye. <laughs> so oh, I was like, oh, look how perfect, perfect. that is. <laughs> so I'll just read it. Um, okay, so it says, Our heavenly parents are more generous with us than we are with ourselves because they are wiser than we are. This is why we might best understand mercy not as turning a blind eye to our actions, but as seeing them with a fully understanding eye. He then goes on to quote um, a scholar, religious scholar of some kind named Nguyen, and it says, Our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. The love that envelops us is not based on our worthiness. It is not our merit that brings it forth. This love, unsolicited, is the miracle that tells us we have a permanent and cherished place in the universe. And so he's seeing this eye as either a blind eye or as an eye that's judging, a judgmental eye, um, an unrighteously judging eye. Yeah. But really, it's an eye of understanding. This old man is probably just understanding of what he's been through. And so that shows, like, he knows, his awareness shows. But his perception, the narrator's perception, is that he's judging him and upset with him when really it was probably an eye that felt compassion and wanted to help. And he shut that down. But perhaps after this, whatever these three men who showed up, the policemen who showed up saw or said to this narrator must have 
helped to change his perception somehow to realize that this old man was someone he did love and who did care about him regardless of what he'd done in the past and he threw that away when he could have welcomed that love yeah um you just made me think of i see you made me think of one thing that it brought me somewhere (laughs) else but uh you probably i think it doesn't use this word in yours otherwise you probably would have thought of this a lot sooner Uh than me (laughs) um but when he's at the very beginning, when he's describing the eye, it says that it's a pale blue eye with a film over it. Mm. And um, I guess when you were just talking about, you know, it's an understanding eye, I thought of like that film kind of being like, you know, something that like our sins can come through, you know, mm. it's like yeah. like this. Um, like a filter. A filter. Yes, mm. that's the word where uh, where our sins are coming through that and he can kind of filter them out, you know, and, and understand our heart's intent versus our actions or who we are versus one mistake, you know, and kind of separate those two things. And I think that that's a really good connection. And then it made me think of a veil, and that's a whole other, oh, yes. <laughs> a whole other a symbolism other deep there. Discussion, yeah, but, I yeah. love that. All right, I think that's pretty much all our thoughts. So we did want to wrap up with a wonderful, well-known scripture in Matthew chapter eleven, verses twenty-eight through thirty, because we, the true nature of God, is loving kindness and to heal and help us. Um, so the scripture starts, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So amongst all our mess ups and our bad decisions, God and Christ are there to welcome us in if we're willing to listen to them and take their hand. They're not going to tell us that it's all okay, that we can do whatever we want, but they are going to help us through whatever we've done and whatever struggles we have because they love us and they don't judge us for the past, but they do want to help us with our future. So I firmly believe that. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Beautiful. Great. All right. So once again, thank you so much for being here with us today. We hope you are having a wonderful week. Don't forget to see God in all things and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.